If you have your Bibles, uh, you can take them and turn to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. Um, I'm going to be sort of around in a lot of places uh, today, uh, but that's probably as good a place to at least embed one particular scripture in your heads and one particular truth uh, in your uh, minds that you can think about uh, for this week and certainly into next week. As we uh, zero in for about five weeks on a particular uh, series just entitled, God is Real, That Changes Everything. And as I have thought that through and as I've wrestled that through in my own head, and even we as a leadership have wrestled that through, it really is true. Um, now, everyone around us doesn't necessarily agree with that. Uh, it's something that sometimes takes a little bit of time and a little bit working out, but the fact that we wrestle with it doesn't make the statement untrue. The Bible is pretty clear as it starts for us. It simply says, in the beginning, God. And then if you go to uh, Hebrews, uh, it says there that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to him must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The Bible's assumption is simply that God is. The Bible's declaration is that God is. In the beginning, God is. It's our responsibility to come to that conclusion and realize the truth of that. It's not something that everyone embraces. Uh, for instance, the Bible will tell us in uh, Psalm chapter 14, and I believe it's Psalm chapter 52, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But that is, that's not meaning somebody who's lacking IQ. What it is saying is somebody is morally bankrupt or, or um, morally... Uh, um, Compromise that they come to the conclusion that there is no God. It's a foolish conclusion to come to. Not that the person is a fool, but that conclusion is a foolish conclusion. We have those who are around us in the world in which we live fairly frequently who want to tell us that God is just a figment of the Christian's imagination. He's something that is developed out of a, a need that wasn't there when we were, um, when we were revolving. Uh, we simply evolved and there was this need that came out of our evolution to explain things that we couldn't explain and therefore we invented God. We devised a supernatural explanation for the things that we couldn't understand. That there really is no supernatural reality and so they would say evolutionists and even naturalists that God is a human creation. Sigmund Freud said that man made God which of course is the reversal of what the Bible declares to be true about God. In his book, The Future of an Illusion, he says that because we have a deep-seated fear, because mankind has deep-seated fears, and because he lives in a threatening world in which he has very little control over his circumstances, he invented God to meet his psychological needs. Man feels the need for an invisible means of support, he says, but there is no God except in man's imagination but he couldn't be more wrong. Man, was not in, man has not invented God. Man does not wish God into existence. Man would rather wish God out of existence, but we certainly don't wish God into existence. Some individuals that uh, I've read over the past number of months that have sort of solidified this notion about the conclusion that we need to reach that God is real. Al Mohler wrote that if we begin with the wrong conception of God, we will misconstrue the entirety of the Christian faith. It's a significant statement, but I, I'm not sure that it goes far enough. I would add this to it if I could ever 
be so bold as to add anything to Al Mohler might say, but I would say that if we begin with the wrong conception of God, we will misconstrue the entirety of human existence. Another individual wrote, nothing else is more decisively consequential in your life than understanding God rightly. Knowing God changes everything. I am convinced of that. We are convinced of that here at the church. Uh, this is a declaration that we want to uh, encourage us to think about and to work through and to increasingly embrace as a congregation. It's not something that is just for the believer. It's something for the unbeliever as well. It's not something that is rooted in doing or even on being. It's something that we accept by faith. It's a reasonable faith that we come to the conclusion that God is real. Think about it for a moment. If that is a true statement, if God is real, the God that is revealed to us in the scriptures, if that is true, what in your life would change? What in your life should change? What in your world would be impacted if you came to the reasonable conclusion that God is real? I want to take just a couple of moments this morning. Uh, over the next two weeks, I want to give you seven ways in which my own heart has concluded that that is true. It's the cumulative reality of walking with God for 31 some, some odd years. I don't know if it would constitute all of the reasons why I have come to conclude that God is real, but all of them are, are sort of additional weights that have come to bear on my thinking and my feeling that have led me to say it is reasonable, Paul. When you take all of this evidence, it is reasonable to believe that God is real. I want to spend this morning maybe in thinking about it in a way that you wouldn't normally think would be a helpful way, but that is through intuition or through um, inference or through existential reasons. Like, how is it that inner, inwardly we think about God and by that thinking about God would come to the conclusion that God is real? Next week, I want to look at three things that are really concrete, ways in which we can, we can say, well, yeah, these are concrete external realities around us that demonstrate that God is real. This morning, I want to spend just time looking at four um, things, uh, internal realities that lead me to deduce that the most reasonable explanation for those is that God is real. The first one is simply the image of God in mankind. The image of God in mankind. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 uh, opened this up to us. It's speaking of God as he, as he created the world and the culmination of God's creation of the world is man and woman. And in verse 26 and 27, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. It's a remarkable statement. That is not said of any other created being or thing. It's not said of any one of the animals that God created. It's not said of any of the angelic beings that he created. It's not said of any of the celestial bodies that he created. It is only said of man and woman that God created them 
in his image and his likeness. It is that reality that sets humankind apart from all other creation, all other, all other things that are in the world around us. There is something unique about humanity. And the Bible tells us what that uniqueness is. It's the image of God or the likeness of God. Now, that's marred. That has been blurred and that has been um, uh, uh, mired by the fact that we have fallen into sin. And so it's, it's something that we don't see there perfectly. It's don't, not that we see it fully like we would have if we had have seen Adam and Eve and had have walked and talked with Adam and Eve. But if you look at people around you, if you were to go for a walk afterwards on the, on the boardwalk down through the beach, when you go to work this week and as you look at people and as you look at them, you can look at them and say, there's something unique about you. There's something that sets you apart from my canary or my hamster or my dog. Some of you might say, maybe not in a good way. But there's something unique about human life. And the uniqueness is this likeness or image of God. Now, you need to be careful not to conclude from that, well, I guess I'm a God. Because we're not God. There is only one God. But there's something infused in humanity that reflects our Creator. There's something that images our Creator. It's obviously not physical, because God is not physical. He doesn't have physicality. But there's things that we might say, such as uh, relational capacities, cognitive awareness, spiritual abilities, eternal realities that no other human being or no other creature has except humans alone. And it's attributed to the fact that we are created in the image of God. That's why there is a value to human life, a dignity to human life that we don't attribute to any other kind of life. Now, one of the things that is happening in our world, in particular over the last 50 years, is that even is being blurred. And we are beginning to say now that there is no difference between human life and animal life, which is a clear words gone from my head, a clear departure from the statement of the Word of God and the value and the worth of human life. Acts 17 records this observation, being then. And Paul is talking to a group of Gentiles who are worshiping idols. And he says, being then that we are offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thought of man. You don't see God in stones or you don't see God in trees. You don't even see God in zebras or in snakes. But you do see God in humanity. And men and women, that's what gives us value and that's what gives us worth. And so one of the things that over the years as I have watched life and I've watched shows and I've learned about human life and I've learned about biological life, there is a distinction between human life and biological life. And that leads me to at least the reasonable consideration that we have been created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, God is real. The second thing that is in my heart and mind as I work this through is simply the awareness of God in mankind. We, we have this sort of awareness that there's something outside of ourselves, a power outside of ourselves that is greater than us. And I see this in at least two different areas. One is in the area of worship. 
and the other is in the area of morality. Where do these come from? Where is this propensity to worship? Where does that come from? Where does our general morality that is spread across human culture from the dawn of mankind, where does that come from? You see, we don't see animals setting up temples. We don't see animals having idols in their dens or in their beehives or those kinds of things. But we see humans creating all kinds of idols and representations of things that they can worship. And I think, where does that come from? Some people worship their body or their health. They, they worship their physicality. There might be their physique, and so they work out, and, and they, they attribute their success and their likability and their, their movement in life to the fact that they look good. Some people pursue their diet, and so they have an incredibly good diet, and so the health of their body. So looks and physicality and body can become an idol. There's just this propensity to attribute so much that we gain in life to our physicality. Other people worship possessions or material things. We build up bank accounts, or we build up uh, properties, or we build up certain possessions that we accumulate over time and we attribute them a certain worth that is beyond what they really have, that they will protect us, that they will preserve us, that they are measures of our success, that we can call upon them in time of trouble and they will deliver us. We do that with our bank accounts. We do that with our properties. Sometimes we worship sex or food or wine and we find in those the things that will satisfy us, the things that will bring us pleasure, the things that will bring us acceptance. Sometimes we worship created things. This happens all around us in Vancouver Island. People might not always identify it, but we worship the ocean, we worship the island, we worship the mountains, we worship the sun. We attribute it value and worth. There's just this natural inclination in us to attribute to things other than God power and influence. Job says it so eloquently this way. He says, if I have made gold my trust, or which is, if I have made gold my trust, that's idolatry. That is worshiping the power of money in gold. So if I have made gold my trust, or if I have called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth has a, is abundant or because my hand has found much. If I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in its splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to the God above. You see, I suspect that worship, at least in my own heart and life, and I don't think I'm unique, but Worship comes from the realization that I need to attribute to something power or control or influence in my life. It, it could be clothes, it could be my phone, it could be my friends, as I said, so many other things. But I, there's this human propensity, universal, to look for things outside of ourselves or beyond ourselves and attribute to them power and worth that they don't have. Where does that come from? I think it's because God has created us. And if we weren't sinful, our natural proclivity be, would be to worship God. Why does God give the first three commandments 
which all speak against idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down and you shall not serve them. The second side of this is the universal propensity to seek morality. The details and specifics of morality are, 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 are culturally unique. But the central building blocks of most cultures are very similar. For instance, you go to just about any culture throughout time and murder is wrong. There are some cultures that are aberrant in their view of that, but the vast majority understand murder to be wrong, as they do theft and as they do adultery. It's not something that is unique to one particular culture. It's a universal morality that is infused in us. Where does that come from? The Bible describes at least two different ways that it comes from. One, it comes from the revealed Word of God. We read the Bible, and it tells us, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. But there's a lot of people that don't have the Bible, and yet they share that same similar morality. And you say, well, where does that morality come from? How do you account for that in the lives of other people? Paul tells it this way. He says, for when the Gentiles are non-believers who don't have the law the written law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. You see, God has written it on the human heart. It's part of being in the image of God, but God has written his law upon human heart. That's why universally around the world, through every culture, there is a, a general morality that we share. And so I ask myself, where does that come from? Why do we share that? And my conclusion, my, my reasonable conclusion at least, and some might go another way, but I think reasonably it's to conclude that there is a God. And that that God has placed morality in my heart. And that that God draws me to worship, but my sinfulness draws me away from worshiping Him to worshiping other things. And so as I look at human beings and I see the uniqueness and the speciality about them, it leads me to conclude that God has made us to reflect him as his representatives here on earth. When I see morality that is generally true across the world, I think, where does that come from? The Bible says it comes from God, and I say, that's a reasonable conclusion. A third thing that I think often, and partly is because I do a lot of funerals, but it's just even in my own life, and even when I wasn't walking with God. It's the inkling of eternity in mankind. Have you ever thought of that, thought that through a little bit? I think it's a universal inkling. The Bible tells us that God has set eternity in the human heart. Another translation of that is he has planted eternity in the human heart. I sometimes feel I repeat myself, and this might be one of the points in which I repeat myself, but how do we explain? How do you explain that basically from the dawn of eternity, 
Humankind has been concerned with issues of life after death. Where does that come from? Where does that need for preparation come from in our lives? Why do we think that there's more to life than this present life? Why do, for example, the Egyptians who had no knowledge of God, at least through special revelation, why would they go to such elaborate lengths to ensure that the dead would have safe passage from this life to the next? Why they would bury them with servants and with goods and with animals and with all those kinds of things that would provision them and protect them when they got to the other side? Why do we see that same kind of proclivity in Mayan culture? Why can you go and find a Tibetan book for the dead which describes their concerns with life after death? Why do you and I, when, when we have particular moments of quiet or maybe we've, we're wrestling with our own mortality and we've got a diagnosis or, or we've been to a funeral and we lie in bed and the lights are out and we're just falling asleep and all of a sudden thoughts go through our mind, there's got to be more to life than this. I wonder where they are right now. I wonder if they are in heaven or if they are in hell. Where does that inkling come from? Where does that shared thought pattern come from? I think it comes from God and the fact that he has placed eternity in all of our hearts. There's no beginning, or there is a beginning to our existence, but there's no end to our existence. And that makes sense if we're made in the image and likeness of God who is eternal. That we who reflect him and we who image him also have eternity in us. And so for me, that's just another weight that I put in my own world and my own thinking to lead me to the conclusion that, Paul, it is rational rational and it is reasonable to conclude that God is real. It's not the only conclusion that one could come to when they think about uh, life after death, but for me it's just another one way in which the weight of evidence leads me to say it's reasonable to conclude that God is real. The final sort of internal uh, intuition that I wrestle with is a spiritual hunger that's in mankind. There's an incredible amount of spirituality in our world. We see it all around us. Human beings are spiritual beings. You say, well, why? Why, why is there this, this, this spiritual proclivity in us that, that is beyond the physical realities of our lives? And again, I drive it back to the fact, well, I'm made in the image of God, and God is a spiritual being. And therefore, I have spiritual hungers, and I have spiritual cravings, and I have spiritual appetites. See, what else would Jesus have been talking about when he said to a group of people, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's talking about a different kind of hunger and thirsting. On another occasion, he says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
See, he's referring to a spiritual appetite. He's referring to a spiritual need that is part of human existence. And he's declaring that that appetite and that need is only satisfied in him. In fact, Augustine, and I've I've used this quote many times because I, I think it's so helpful. But Augustine, who wrote in the third or fourth century, I can't remember which it is, he says, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Don't you see that restlessness in people? Don't you recognize in your friends, it might be your schoolmates, that, you know, that there's, there's something that is beyond physical? All of us recognize physical hunger, don't we? We do. I mean, we're, we're all starting to get hungry now, maybe some more than others. And if you begin to smell the the food wafting in, you're, you're going you're gonna to feel it even more. But what does that physical hunger drive you to do? It drives you to eat something. So you go to the fridge and you pull something out, you go get a burger, you go get a pizza. You satisfy that physical hunger that you're experiencing. But what about the spiritual hunger? That's when in all of us, that longing, that restlessness, that craving, that searching for something to satisfy us. One of the things that I think most reveals spiritual hunger is music. You can listen to secular music and it seems like song after song after song articulates a desire for something that's not met in physical realities. Probably the one that's going through most of your heads, um, certainly going through mine, and I think it's Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. Try, and I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Another one that I was thinking of is U2, and you, some of you are familiar with their music and whatnot, and he articulates just so well this spiritual hunger where he says, and I still can't find what I'm looking for. You know, we we see that, don't we, in in people around us, this just pursuit of something that will satisfy them. And, and we pursue it in physical things. We pursue it in spiritual things. We look for ways that, that will just fill that sort of emptiness, that hollowness, that craving in our, in our lives, that spiritual hunger. But we try all of the wrong things and we're still not satisfied. We still don't find what it is we're looking for. See, this, it's this human awareness and longing for something that's deep within inside of us. This deep yearning for something transcendent is ultimately, I think, grounded in the fact that we are created for fellowship with God and we will not be fulfilled until we have fellowship with God. C.S. Lewis writes that there is a spiritual hunger that corresponds to a real need that can only be met through God. Most people are aware of a deep sense of longing within that can only be satisfied or can't be satisfied by anything transient or created. He says, Lewis, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
that is really rational. That's really reasonable. That if there's a longing or a need that I have that nothing in this world has been able to meet, then just maybe the ability to meet that lies beyond this present world. You see, that doesn't prove that God exists. It doesn't prove that there is heaven, but this longing is exactly what we should expect since I believe we are created to relate to God. One Renaissance poet said, Our soul is like an iron needle drawn to the magnetic pole of God. You see, God can't be eliminated from our life precisely because we have this homing instinct that draws us towards a home that we're longing to return to. Is it Joni Mitchell that writes, I got to get back to the garden? And so this universal spirit or spiritual hunger in mankind suggests to me, and I find it rational to conclude, reasonable to conclude, the reason that that spiritual hunger is there is because God is real and he's placed it there so that I might find so if God has made us in his image, then that leads me to the strong conclusion that God is real. If God has revealed his law universally in human hearts, then that leads me to reasonably conclude that God is real. If God has placed eternity in all the hearts of men and women, then that leads me to conclude reasonably that God is real. And if there is a spiritual hunger that can't be met in anything that this world has to offer, then it leads me to conclude reasonably and rationally that God is real. In the beginning, God. I want us to continue on this quest to conclude without equivocation that God is real. Because as we want to point out to you in the next weeks and, and the next year to come, that if that is true, and I am convinced it is true, if God is real, then that changes everything in our lives and in our world. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives. We're all built differently, Lord. Some of us have strengths in feeling and emotion. Some of us have strengths in thinking and rationality. You're aware of all of those strengths and you don't just reveal yourself to one group of us and not the rest, but you have ways of making yourself known to everyone who you have created in your image and likeness. I would pray, Father, for some here who are still on that journey, are wrestling in their heart and mind with whether or not you are real that you would bring them to a place where the evidence would lead them to reasonably conclude that the answer is likely that you are real. And for those of us, Lord, who have come to that conviction, would you strengthen it in us? And would you move us away from those who believe that but live as though we don't to those of us who believe it and live with every ounce of our strength 
as though it is true. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.